awesome. That's good. Any, any other words? And great. We'll take great. Not as good as awesome, but we'll take great. Fantabulous. Fantastic, Jess. Awake. We're good. We're good. Um, uh, if you're new here, welcome. Glad that you're uh, joining with us. If you are listening online, we are glad you're listening online as well. Uh, and just want to say thank you to Gary for last week. How many of you were here last week? Show of hands. Yeah, you were here for the best sermon ever. He humbly, humbly titled it that. Um, and so I was like, how do you follow that up? Like the best I can do is the second best sermon ever. So I decided to go the opposite way. And today I titled this the most awkward sermon ever. And you laugh, but you have no idea what's coming. We're in a series. We do things in series simply because we don't want to preach to you for four hours, and I don't think you want that either. So we break it up into different things to share one thought over a number of weeks and allow the Holy Spirit to work through that in our lives over, over the time. And so we've been in a series called One Another. We just simply have a one and an A just to remind you that Jesus' greatest command, or really his, his one command to us as Jesus followers, was that we would love one another. And how do we know that? Because there was an eyewitness there named John, and John wrote these words down for us that, that we would be able to, to see them and read them for ourselves today. And here's what John wrote. He said this, um, Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. It's a command. So if you're a Jesus follower, it's not an option. What he's about to say is not like, well, if I feel like it or if they deserve it. It's not. He says, I'm giving you a command. And that command is to love one another, the people around you, the Jesus followers. And he actually extends that even further. Uh, but he says, love one another. And you're like, well, how do we love one another? And he gives, us, <laughs> he gives us the way. He says, I want you to love one another the way that I've loved you. The way Jesus loved his disciples, the way Jesus loves us is the way he wants us to love others. So not only is it a command, it's a response to his example of, of, of his love for us. And then finally, he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. So it's a command. It's a response to his love, not what's going on around us. And it's a proof that you're actually a Jesus follower. There's no, like, you know, the bumper sticker in your car doesn't prove it. You know, the fact that you're in this building this morning, that doesn't prove it. What proves it is that are we living out Jesus' command? Are we following Jesus' command of loving one another? And so um, we looked at the last couple of weeks, the early church leaders. So people like James and Paul and Peter, they would write to um, Jesus' followers all over the Roman Empire and they would reiterate this thought, this command, and they would explain it in more detail. What does it mean to love, to love one another, really? They actually, you know, not just reminded. Some of them, Paul, Paul, uh, Peter was like, I plead with you. Would you please, please, would you just love one another? I like, I feel that way as a parent sometimes to my children. Please, please, would you just love one another? And we looked at a bunch, and love one another is simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. And we looked at a couple of the last you know, few weeks. We looked at one where it was forgive one another because Christ has forgiven you. Well, that's simple, but it's not easy. I had a guy come up to me last night. He's like, Mark, I'm struggling with forgiveness for two years. He says, I just can't. You make it sound easy, but it's not. And it's not easy. It was never promised to be easy, but it's a command to us. You know, it's also, we talked a couple of weeks ago about your tongue. How you speak to people and about people actually shows you how you love people. What are you saying to them and about them? And so, again, simple, but definitely not easy, especially for those of us who talk too much. You know, James, don't laugh at that. That just means it's true. James, James is the brother of Jesus, one of the guys we want to look at this morning. I just want to simply, quickly look at his letter that he wrote 
Uh, and it's, we call it James, but it's a letter that he wrote to other people. And James was the brother of Jesus, so it's just a little historical content. He was the, the, the brother of Jesus, and he was the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So when we think of the word church, we tend to think of like this, like a building. Uh, it's usually what comes into our mind, or we think about what's happening right now. But that's not what James was talking about when he wrote to the church. He was writing to this thing that they called the ecclesia, which simply meant gathering. So when James was thinking, hey, I'm writing to the church, he's thinking more of like, I'm writing to this. Um, like a group of people that gathered together. It can be a gathering for anything. That was for, like, make America great again. That was uh, that gathering. That was the, the same word. And maybe like, well, that's kind of big. Maybe it's around a table. This would also con- constitute the word ecclesia or church. And maybe like, that's too big. This would also be. As long as the gathering is more than one. You can't have a gathering by yourself. That's just not allowed. But the church is a gathering of, a gathering of people. So this morning, as you look around, it's the faces here that are the church, and that, that's who he's writing to. And Luke actually writes, um, Luke was not an eyewitness uh, of the events of Jesus, but he was an eyewitness of the events that happened in the church, the ecclesia, the gathering. And he, he describes for us what it looked like early on for these Jesus followers living out this idea of love one another. And here's what he writes, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Uh, 3,000 people had just joined the church the day before. 3,000. That's incredible. And he writes this. This is what it looked like. He says, all the believers, so all the people who had just joined the church, the ones who had faith and trust in Jesus, they devoted themselves to something. The word devoted means they committed themselves to things. This is what they were all about. It's not like, ah, you know, maybe if it, if it, if it works for me that day, then I'll do it. But they're like, no, no, we're committed to this. We're all in. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was studying the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, but also the New Testament scriptures, which weren't even uh, really, we didn't call them New Testament then. They were just the letters that were spreading around, similar to this letter from James. And it said um, they committed themselves to fellowship, and we're going to look at that word in a bit. Again, just remember that one, fellowship. And then this, sharing. They shared a lot of stuff. They shared in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and they, and they, and they committed or devoted themselves to prayer. Uh, and it says in verse 43 that a deep sense of awe came over them all. It wasn't just like a, you know, like a cool club that we hung out on. There was just like this awe of, wow, this is, something, this is something special. This is something incredible. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. In verse 44, all the believers, how many? All of them. So 3,000 plus. They're meeting together in one place, pretty big place. And what did they do? They shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those in need. So they worshipped together at the temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. And what did they do? They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. They shared everything. They shared their money. They shared their meals. Verse 47, all the while, they're praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Like, people wanted to be a part of this gathering. And you're like, well, of course they did. Like, if I went to church and said, ugh, you know, I can't pay my hydro bill. And then the guy across the aisle was like, well, I can. Here you go. You're like, I'm in. I have a mortgage payment as well. And you're like, hey, well, I can. Man, wouldn't you be in? Oh, man. You're like, wait a second. I don't know which side of the aisle I'm on. Maybe I'm the one who's paying for. <laughs> but as I think about it, he paints this pretty picture of the church. It's like everybody loves everybody. And I think like the Smurf song. La, 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 la. Everybody's happy. Everybody just loves being there. And James gets to pastor this church. What a dream job. It's only second to mine. I think this church is just as good, if not better, at some of these things. But this was like this idea of, 
wow, what a great church to be a part of. What a great church to lead. And James writes a, writes a letter to this group of people who care for one another, who love one another, who serve one another. But his letter reveals that things didn't stay that way. He wrote to Jewish believers. He starts it off by just simply saying, I'm writing to the Jewish believers, you Jewish, the Jewish Jesus followers, who that's really, most of them were Jewish Jesus followers really early on. James is one of the earliest letters written. It says, but you've been scattered all over the place. And why were they scattered? They were scattered due in part to the work of a guy named um, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus hated everything Christian. If you even looked you know, maybe looked Christian. If you smelled like Christian, you were in trouble. If you're like, he would, he would follow people and he's like, you know what, they're too Christian, he'd kill them. And if, if killing wasn't, he wasn't sure if you were Christian, he'd just arrest you and drag you off to prison and then they would try you and then kill them. I wonder how big our church would be if that happened here every week. Not too big. Well, guess what happened in Jerusalem? It wasn't too big either. They're like, yeah, we're... we're, we're you know, worship or die. Well, we're going to worship, but we're just getting out of here. And so they scattered all over the place. And, and so it was like Paul just kept trying to wipe them out. He didn't care that they scattered. He would chase them down. And uh, he would kill one and another one would pop up. And I was like, it's like Christian whack-a-mole where Paul's out there and he's like, I'm going to get one, I'm going to get one. And then another one pops up because there was something about this gathering that just wouldn't die. And Paul would later write in one of his letters, after he decided, I can't beat them, I'll join them. He decided later on, as he wrote a letter, he wrote about this guy named James. He said, James, that guy's a pillar in the church. I, like, try to destroy his whole thing. And he never left Jerusalem. I tried to kill him, wasn't successful. I tried to eradicate his group, not successful. That guy, there's something about him. He's a, he's a pillar. And so James, James, the brother of Jesus, writes a letter. And the reason we have it is because people who got this letter were like, this is a letter from James. This is, this is pretty, pretty impressive. It's like a letter from home. They're scattered abroad. They're like, wow, this is amazing. He's like, you know what? Send this letter on to others. They're like, we're copying that. I want to keep a little bit for us. And there's thousands of these copies. And when they find them now, these copies from antiquity, and they compare them, they say the same thing. It's incredible how detailed they copied. And you can trust the accuracy of what you're about to hear. James' letter is thought to be one of the earliest things. And I know it was written to Jewish people because most of Christians at that point were Jewish. But Paul would write later, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. This isn't about, you know, uh, segregation of groups. This is about unity in Christ. So there's stuff that we can learn this morning. Um, James' letter, he basically describes faith as a faith that works. It's a faith that works. Martin Luther was a guy who was six, in the 1600s who had a revelation of, you know, the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by trusting God. He was studying Romans, and, and that was his thing. He says, it's not about the works we do. It's about trusting God, because he was being raised in a, in a religion of his day that said, it's all about works. You've got to give money to the church, and you better show up on Sunday, and you better be at such and such a place. And, and it was works, works, works. And maybe if you do enough good works, God will think you're good enough to let you into heaven someday. And if you're still not good enough, you can pay us money and we'll put a, put a good word in for you, and God might let you in someday. And nobody knew where they stood with God. And then Martin Luther read James. He's like, man, it's all about faith. It's all about faith. It's all about faith. And then he gets to James, and James is like, it's all about works. And he's like, take that out of the Bible. That's like the epistle of straw, he says. It, it's never going to survive. Later on, he would come to a realization that what James was saying is, is not that your works, you do these works Jesus follower so that it saves you. He said, you're a Jesus follower. And as a result of following Jesus, let those works happen in your life. 
Let those be what flows out of your heart, that those works should come from a life that's been changed. And uh, I thought of it, and I was like, those moments have happened in my life as well. Have you ever, maybe the teenagers maybe can relate, have you ever been, like, disciplined in front of, uh, in public, and you're just, you're too old for it? You know, like, you're in the mall, and you're like, you know, I want to buy this, and your mom's like, no, and you're like, come on, please. And then your parents say something like this, you're 15 years old, would you start acting like it? Oh, only me, okay. I remember, I remember it didn't only happen when I was 15. I, 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 uh, there's too many of them here, but oh well. I once, we're going anyways, played on that. We said it's awkward, right? We played on a church baseball team, and I was a little bit, um, I was a little bit uh, yes, competitive in my day. <laughs> so that section over there, you just keep it down, all right? So, so there's one time we were playing this team, and, and everybody on the team quickly learned that they could all only head to the left field. And so I was ended up being in the right field. And so I was like, nothing's coming out here. I'm just going to hang out. And I sat down in the field. And uh, I was out there. And I was waiting. I thought, you know what? Well, like, let them try and hit it out here. Because if they try to hit it out here, it's a pretty good distraction, actually. They'll probably strike out trying to hit it out to this spot. And, like, we're, we're going to win the game. So I sat out in the field. And I'm thinking, you know, if anybody's, like, uh, like the, if, if they're going to say anything, I got a response for them. And, but, but I was surprised because it was my bench who started shouting at me. They're like, stand up! Stand up. I'm like, they're not going to hit it out here. And they're like, just stand up. You're being rude. I'm like... I'm not being rude. I'm having a rest, right? I'm just like yelling back and forth to the bench. And then one of them stands up and yells, you're the pastor. Would you start acting like one? The beer league has never been the same, but I stood up and I started preaching. No, I'm just kidding. I did it. I hung my head and I walked to the bench and I was like, I'm never playing baseball with these people again. Because those moments, they're awkward. But James almost has one of those moments with these people. But it's, it's, it's in such love. He just simply says, you know what? You are a Jesus follower. Now would you live like one? He's like, I'm not trying to tell you, try and become a Jesus follower. You already are. So would you just live like one? And so his, his introduction, as he begins his letter, he alludes to the fact that not everything's going well for the Jesus followers. And it never was promised. The gospel doesn't promise that it's all going to go well for you. And James doesn't promise it either. It's not going to be easy. Instead, he begins his first sentence is, hey, this is to the Jewish believers scattered abroad. And he starts with this. When trials and troubles come your way. Not if, when. When they start coming your way, he's like, just realize that God can still work in those things. It's producing patience in your life. Oh, I'm just praying that God takes it away. Well, if he doesn't, it's producing patience and endurance and character and hope. And you know what? Maybe even joy. Like James, we'd rather it was like, you know, dear God, kill Paul because we don't, we don't want to die, right? He's like, you know what? It's producing something in your life. He starts his letter that way. Then he talks about, you know, a bunch of different things. He talks about the tongue. He's one of the strongest on how people use their tongue. And then he kind of takes it down and he ends his letter with similar sentiments. And we want to just spend a little bit of time there this morning. James chapter 5, the end of his letter. He didn't have a chapter, but we do. So if you, it's to help you find it. So if you can, go to James chapter 5. If you got a Bible or you got it on your phone, go there. Don't just Trust what I'm saying. I hope the Holy Spirit speaks to you through it this morning. He writes to them and says early on, be patient. You need to be patient with one another. You know, you need to take courage. He says, don't grumble about one another. The word's like sighing, like, oh, they're here again. He's like, don't, don't grumble about one another. He simply says to them, I want, he reminds them of the power of prayer just at the very end of his letter. But in that letter, 
he actually uses the word we've been looking at all this time, one another, alalon, this idea of one another. Jesus says, I want you to do this to one another, love one another. And here's the one another thought, James 5, verse 13. He asks questions to them, and as they're reading the letter, I would, I would hope that you'd read it as if it's the first time you're getting a letter from James. And he says, hey, are any of you suffering hardships? He kind of wants an answer. Any of you suffering hardships today? Do you? He says, you know what you should do? You should pray. You should pray. You should seek God about that. You should realize that he's with you in it. Talk to him about it. And the flip side, any of you happy this morning? A few? Sitting beside somebody who's suffering hardship. What does he say to you? You should sing. You should sing because you know what? It, it can change the atmosphere of the other person. Paul would say, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. It's not like live your life like a musical where you just always talk in the song. Hello, everyone. How are you? It's, it's not like that. But the idea of the truth of this, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> are any of you sick, he says. Are any of you sick? He says, if you are. Here's what you should do. And I, I love this morning, you know, Melissa's on her heart was, you know, that we'd have times where we pray for one another. Because he says, you should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. And such a prayer, a genuine prayer offered in faith, this genuine trust in God. James says, that's going to heal the sick. And he says, and the Lord will make you well. And he adds on, and if you have any sins, they're going to be forgiven. And James may have paused at that moment. And he maybe, maybe he thought, you know, Huh, with those words, maybe, maybe people are going to think they got to call the elders for everything. You know, I got a prayer request. My cat's got a hangnail. I better call the pastor. Hey, can you pray? You know, or maybe he thought someday the elders are going to use this verse, you know, against people and they're going to use this verse to control people. They're going to make them do things. Or maybe people are going to think that they've got to confess their sins to an, to an elder in order for, for, for them to be forgiven because that's kind of what he, he alludes to. He said, maybe, maybe they're going to do that. You know, it's funny because that's actually what happened, that people and religion began to take these words and say, you know what, you've got to confess your sins to a priest or you've got to confess your sins to a pastor and he'll get you in with God. It was one of the things Martin Luther was so against in his day. But it's worth thinking and looking at this. They may have said, so James, you're saying I don't have to confess my sins to a priest or pastor? Oh, that's good. But then he carries on and he writes this. He says, let me clarify. James 5, 16. He says, confess your sins. But I thought we didn't have to. He says, yeah, you do. But to one another. And pray for one another. This one another, one another. He says that you might be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. Confess your sins to one another. As Jesus followers. How many of you are Jesus followers here this morning? You'd say, yeah, I'm a Jesus follower. Awesome. You know, he would say this, confess your sins. What, what does that mean? That means openly acknowledge your faults, your sins, your missteps, and your mistakes. So we're just going to do that this morning. Um, we're going to ask, is there any volunteers? I'd actually prefer if we started with the biggest sins first. So any affairs? Murders? Okay, where's all the people whose hands were up that were willing to be Jesus followers? Who's going to confess first? <laughs> I told you it was going to be awkward. I sure did. I sure did. But I can see some of you, you know. Your palms are sweating. Your heart's pounding. You're like, why did I sit at the front? You know, I wish I sat in the back. If he blinks, I'm out of here. Why? Because this idea of confessing our sins to one another, it, it, it clearly says that. Confess your sins to one another. But, uh, but I don't think James intended for that to happen in a big gathering. And yet, we know that it happened. 
And no one wants to join a church where they pass the mic around. Everybody's like, yeah, this is what I sinned. This is my sin this week. No one wants to join that. And if you're visiting this morning, it's not always like this, just so you know. But we don't think that that's really how it happened. But we know that it did happen and people flocked to be a part of this gathering. So something happened where they would confess sin to one another, and yet people flocked to it. You know, the early church was known for sharing. They shared their stuff with one another. And so here's a thought for you. The early church shared their stuff with one another, but the early church also shared their stuff with one another. The early church shared their stuff with one another, but the early church also shared their stuff with one another. They shared their physical stuff, we saw it, but they also shared their emotional, their spiritual stuff with one another. Paul wrote to the Galatians shortly after this, and he said these words, Share one another's burdens. I'd rather share their money. He's like, yeah, but there's more to it. I want you to share one another's burdens. And I just love this because he says this. It's in this way that you obey the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? That you would love one another. How do I do it? I'll share in other people's burdens. I'll share in their stuff because sometimes it's, it's okay not to be okay. But sharing burdens, sharing, confessing sin, man, that that requires trust and trustworthiness. So I wouldn't encourage anybody here to confess your sins to this group because you don't know if you can trust them. There's no guarantee that any of this is trustworthy in this place. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that it's trustworthy in any group, but it's required in order for this to happen. And you know what the Jesus followers, they were devoted to fellowship. Remember that word? Devoted to fellowship. Fellowship is the word koinonia. We write fellowship, but it's actually the word intimacy. They were devoted to intimacy, to knowing one another's hearts. What's going on in the heart of one another? They, were, they loved one another enough to say, I'll walk with you in a trust-filled relationship, in a trustworthy relationship. My question for you this morning, do you have that? You know, when you think of the church and you think of the gathering, do you have a gathering where you can confess your stuff? And a gathering means more than one. I just talked to the Lord about it. Do you have that group? You know, are there people who are going to walk with you and help you carry your burdens that you can genuinely share what's going on? You know, are you devoted actually to helping others walk with their burdens and carry theirs? Because if he says loving one another involves is confessing sins one to another, how do you do it? You know, we hear the word confession. It's a little scary. You know, we think confession is going to be like, if I tell everybody this, I'm just, it's going to be like, oh, all the shame will be on me. I might as well put on a scarlet letter. You know, it's just like, oh. But it's really crazy that confession does the exact opposite. Confession brings darkness or brings light to dark places. You know, it's like the monster in the closet with your kids. You know, when your kids are scared of the dark. And like my kids sometimes, what do we do? We just go in there and we're like, you're scared of the dark? You're scared of the closet? You think there's a boogeyman down this road? Let's turn on the lights. Let's walk in the closet and see, hey, is there any boogeyman here? Not here. Maybe in a few other rows, but not this one. Right? There's nothing there because light brings, brings it just it dispels darkness. And that's what happens when confession happens. Confession lifts shame off the shoulders. We, it does the exact opposite of what we think it will happen. Confession fosters humility. So you look around and think, oh, they all got their stuff together. They don't. And the, the greatest, you know, it's one thing if you think we have our stuff together. That's one thing. But for us, let's just say, I think I have my stuff together. What does it do? It just elevates pride, and pride keeps you stuck in a cycle. But confession, confession fosters humility and freedom. Confession is actually a step in the direction of deep, meaningful relationships. I have one of those. I have, a, I have a group. I meet regularly in a group that, uh, that that's mainly deals with the uh, topic of pornography addiction. Walking with people who are saying, you know what, we're going to cheer you on. 
We, we know where the enemy comes after you, but we're with you, man. We're going to walk with you and walk with one another. And everybody's like, whoa. Okay, everybody just looks straight to the front. You know, the thing is, we've learned the truth is that it's the same for whatever stuff you're carrying. Whatever stuff that you're carrying, it has the same, there's the same truth. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, there's, there's things that people struggle with today, and they, I believe they continue to struggle because we won't talk about it. And this morning, as awkward as it may feel and it may be, my heart is for your freedom because it's real. See, there's nothing like sin, there's sexual sin rampant in our, in our culture, everywhere. But that's not new. It was rampant back then. And when Paul wrote to, to people back then, he said, hey, there's people in sexual addiction. There's people in addiction back then. And he said he wrote to them simply saying, I've got the same message for you. The times might be different, but the message is the same. You're like, well, I don't know if it's addiction. I, I loved in our Romans group the other night, we were sitting around talking about, you know, addiction basically means something else masters you. Something else is your master. And one of the young guys in our, in our group said, you know, if you wonder if something's an addiction, just try and stop. You'll find out real quick who's the master. And so Paul, Paul wrote to Timothy. He was a young man. He was a young pastor. And he wrote to him and he said this. This is actually the verse that, that our group of guys, we, we went through this thing called the 40-day challenge a little while back. 40 days just spending time in, in God's word and encouraging one another. 40 days uh, in, in this journey of freedom from pornography addiction, and this was the kind of the key verse, but this verse is the same for any addiction. It says this, run, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust, he says to Timothy. Well, that's the same today. He says, instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace, and enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. So this morning, just leave that up there for a minute, because he gives you three great, great thoughts. He says, run, run from the stuff that's corrupting you. Run from the stuff that's corrupting you. Romans just simply says that stuff, you know, it's like all that sin. You think it's going to be great, but it's just destroying you. It's killing you from the inside. He says, let me remind you. Paul would say, let me remind you of who you are and whose you are. Because I don't know if you know. Do you not realize that you can just put off the old man, he says? You know, that, that thing that you keep grabbing, you can put that off. And he says, you can put on a new man because you're not that person anymore. You are brand new, he says. He says, to, you know, to those who are stuck, he's like, shame off you, man. Not shame on you. Shame off you because of what Jesus has already done for you. Sin's not your master anymore. You've been set free. Sin's not your master. When we think of the word master, we think of like slavery. You know, and in times where there was, you know, slavery with the slave masters, and they would crack the whip and the slave would do whatever the master said. Why? Because otherwise he's going to beat you. And so for many, what I feel like that happens is, you still hear the master's voice, but you don't realize you've been set free. You're not that person anymore. If, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he set you free. He breaks the chains and he simply says to you, don't listen to that voice anymore. But you hear it still every once in a while. You hear the voice from the other side. Ah, you should do this. You should do this. He's like, you know what? You're not my master anymore. I am not. I don't have to obey. I can consider myself dead to you. And that's what Paul says. He says, run from it. Run from it. You know, don't dilly-dally with it. Don't play close to the edge. He's like, run, run, run from that. And for most of us in our Christianity, we would be very familiar with that. It's like, oh, there it is again, all the rules. Don't do this, don't do that. You know, run away from that, run away from this. <laughs> but Paul doesn't stop there. He says, Timothy, you know what, run away from that. But as you're running from that, I want you to run to something. Not just run from, but run to. And when he says run to, or like pursue righteous living, He's like, run towards that like you mean to catch it. Because people can run in all different ways. I coach a, a kid's soccer team. Kids, 
run in all different ways. You know, you get there and you're like, okay, kids, you know, be the ball, get the ball, run to the ball. And then you got kids who just do this kind of stuff. They like lay on the field or they walk to the dandelions and their thought is like, maybe the ball will come to me. And we have people in the same thought of this idea of freedom and Christianity. Eh, if God wants it, it'll happen. He's like, run, pursue right living, just obeying God instead of obeying your old master. He says, if you, if you um, pursue this, it's going to produce peace in your life. And, like Peace is something you can't buy. But he says, you can pursue him. Peace will be one of the things, run towards it. And so he didn't say, you know, okay, don't do this and do this. He says one more thing that I think we so often miss. He says, run from, run to, and run with. Run with some people. Enjoy the companionship of those who pursue God from a pure heart. Why companionship? Because you're not meant to be the church alone. There's people that you need in your life because they see things you don't see. Close companionship, those people see your blind spots. I used to drive truck. I still sort of do, sort of. But when I drove truck, you know, there's times where I'm pulling over, changing lanes, and all of a sudden there's a car there. I'm sure it wasn't there, but it was there because it's in the blind spot. And in our life, we have those blind spots. I remember this week I was driving with my son, Lincoln. We were driving in a tractor, and I was driving towards Dick and Liz's place and turning left into their driveway, and it was reminded a flashback to like 18, 20 years ago when I was driving a tractor, very similar, making that same corner, same turn, and all of a sudden, wham, car ran right into the front, of my, the front wheel of my tractor, parts of the car everywhere. And I told Lincoln about, about that story, and why? Because it's, it's in the blind spot. I didn't see it coming. And it's the same thing we have in our lives. But is there anybody close enough that can see your blind spots? I'm so grateful for the people that I've had in my life who helped see the things that were, that were going on. <laughs> you know, my, let's say I've got friends who get to read my whole internet history. And they come and they tell me, Mark, do you realize how much time you spend searching um, the Leafs and sports? <laughs> I was like, uh, no, I didn't realize that. I thought, man, yeah, how much time do I waste on something that's meaningless? Why? Because somebody can see a blind spot. You know, sometimes we need the encouragement of the others who are running with us. You know, uh, Solomon, the wisest man, said it this way, two are better than one. He says, when one falls, he says, or they, they can help each other succeed. He says in the next verse, he says, if one person falls, the other can reach out and help them. But someone who falls alone, they're in real trouble. He says, that's the idea of this doing life together, this one another. You know, I remember the coach in the movie Facing the Giants, he's walking with them like, you can do this, you can do this reminding people of who they want to be. It's not like I'm the police. That's not the thing, oh, I found sin in your life. I'm your accountability partner. I found sin in your life. It's not that at all. It's like, hey, I know who you want to be. I know who I want to be. Let's walk this thing together. Paul says in Hebrews, you've got a great cloud of witnesses watching you. Great cloud of witnesses. So run with endurance the race. Toss the sin aside. You don't really want that in your life. But we find so many still struggle with it simply because they don't run with other people. I'm thankful for people who run with me in my life. A number of years ago, it was my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law who said to me, Mark, the way you talk to your children, they're just kids, he says, but the way you talk to them, you're going to drive them away with the way you treat them. And I'm like, come on, they need to hear this stuff. And then I began to realize that I don't want to drive my kids away. And I was so thankful for him sharing that in my life. I've been grateful for the person who came into my life. I didn't like it at the moment, but they said, Mark, the way you're spending your money, you're going to bankrupt. You can't keep living like that. And I was grateful, and I called their financial advisor, and he's, him and Jesus saved my life. 
You know, and I have a spouse. I won't name any names. But my spouse who, who, no, who notices things in my life, and she gently points them out in my life and gives me things that I can see and say, hey, this is, this is who I want to be. I have friends who care enough about me that they say, listen, we know we want to live in freedom. Let's cheer us on to live in freedom. But you know what? I'm, I'm aware, just simply by statistics' sake, that there are lots of people in this room who are still stuck. You know, church has become a great place to hide. And it becomes this place where life is full of, of shame and, and not freedom, not real freedom. And that wasn't James' main point in what he was saying, saying here. He's talking about the power of prayer, but as he talks about the one another, he suggests a way that we could be made whole, not just healed, but whole, spirit, soul, body, relationally. That's what that word means. Paul says, or James says this, he said, confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be made whole. The earnest prayer of a righteous person. It doesn't have to be the pastor. Just a righteous person. Someone who's seeking God. That person has, their prayers have great power and produce great results. You know, so it's not this idea of get the pastor to pray for you. If you're going through something tough, oh, I'll just put it on the website. Somebody will pray for me. Do you realize that you, you can live out loving one another by praying for one another? Do you realize that as a Jesus follower? By praying for one another out loud? Let's pass the mic around. Who wants to start? I don't want to pray out loud in this big group. What if somebody hears me? That's your job, Mark. You realize that that what what James says, he says, the the, the prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available. He says it's actually this, it's an effectual, fervent prayer. It actually works. Because there's so many prayers we pray that just don't work. And a lot of times I'm convinced that because we're praying the wrong kinds of prayers, I'm praying, God, this is what I want. God, this is what I need. God, get me out of this situation. God's me, me, me. And James like, you know, there's a prayer that really works. When you'll pray with and for one another, it actually produces tremendous strength. It gets answered. Have you ever met people that have walked in through a difficult time and then all of a sudden they have tremendous strength? I've seen it in hospitals lots of times. I've seen it with parents of kids going through tough times. I've seen marriages that are like, in just dire straits, and then you just watch them. There's this calm, collected demeanor as they walk through it. Why? Because someone's praying for them, and then and, and there's strength as a result. I don't know if you realize, but you have that, that, that ability. That's, but it only happens in these relationships. Why? Prayer requires trust. It's, it's like a really intimate thing for somebody to pray out loud with someone else. It really is. It reveals the heart. And not, not, the, not the prayers, like just a, uh, can you pray for me? Okay, I just... Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. Did it work? Okay, let's try the other one I know. Dear Lord, bless his food in Jesus' name. Amen. What? Did it work? Because we have these words. And he's like, that's not what I mean. He's like, would you pray? Would you just seek God? Just seek God. In, in, in words, would you seek him? He says, it will produce wonderful, incredible results. And then he reminds him and says, you know what? We've seen it before. He reminds those Jewish Jesus followers that there was a man named Elijah. And he said, Elijah was a human just like us. You know, we look at him, he was a superhero, but he wasn't. He was human just like us. And when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. And James is like, don't underestimate the power of genuine, trusting God, seeking God earnestly kind of prayer. Because those kind of prayers can get answered. I, I, my fear is that those prayers just never get prayed. Because we're just not willing to get close enough with somebody to say, listen, here's my stuff. Will you pray with me? Here's my stuff. Will you pray with me? Do you have those kind of 
connections because that's what the church was meant to be. And so I close with this. What about, what about me? I'll start with me. What about me? And then I'll move on to you. Well, I preached on it, so now it's done. Ta-da! Awkwardness averted. But that's not, if it was that simple, that'd be great, but it isn't. It's simple, but it's not easy. Do you have one another's in your life that you, that you run with, that you can confess sin to, that you pray with out loud? Do you have those people? You know, I found that in those times, it's where you grow the most in your faith. It's where there's this excitement about being a Jesus follower because you actually dialed into what it really is all about. Sometimes we need to wait and we think, oh, you know, the enemy just, he's crippling your life in darkness and shame. You're like, well, I'm just waiting for a good opportunity to tell someone about what's going on in my life. I'm just waiting for a good opportunity. There'll never be a good opportunity. Well, maybe they'll start a group and they'll, they'll announce there's this group for, for people like me who have this thing going on. Maybe it's alcohol addiction or maybe it's anger management or maybe it's pornography addiction or whatever it is. And then I'll, then I'll say something maybe to someone. There, there will never be a good opportunity. So just why not now? My question is why not now? Why wait? Why wait? Why spend more days uh, living stuck when you don't need to? You know, is there one person that you would be willing to talk to? Is there one person that you would be willing to say, you know what, I'm just going to start, I'm going to try and initiate trust with somebody and start with someone you trust. But if the struggle is real, I encourage you to tell someone today. That step feels hard, but it's amazing. I've seen it time after time after time and how much it just lifts off the shoulders as opposed to brings the heavy on. And if you struggle with pornography addiction, I would encourage you to come talk to me. Because experiencing freedom, there's no point ever going back to that. And I would encourage you this morning, maybe like, oh, I'm not going up after the service because I don't want anybody else to know. And that's fine. Shoot me a text. But I'd encourage you to join me. We'll do 40 days. <laughs> your life's worth it. Your wife's worth it. Your kids are worth it. Your future's worth it. I did not expect to come to church today and hear this. Maybe today ends with one of two ways. Maybe today ends with, we want Gary. We want Gary. <laughs> And you'll get your wish. He's back next week. But maybe it ends with someone's life being changed, not just for the rest of their life, but for eternity. And that was my hope this morning in pushing through some awkward stuff that maybe a life could be affected and changed forever. And here's the final thoughts. They're not mine. They're James. James ends with these words in his letter. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth, if someone's following Jesus and then they kind of, they start wandering towards other things and someone else is becoming their master, but if they're brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back from wandering will save that person from death. Why? Because every single sin carries death with it. And he says, you'll bring about the forgiveness of many sins. So this morning, two groups of people here today. If you're here today and you're a Jesus follower and Holy Spirit prompted something in your heart that you just need to repent of, which means change my mind about, change my way of thinking, I'm going to go tell somebody, would you go do it? Would you go do it? That's what the church is meant to be, to love one another, bear one another's burdens, share stuff with one another. Would you find just one other person and do that? And maybe you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower. And you were like, this is a little, I, like, I, my friend invited me to church. I, I, what the heck was this? You know, it's like, you're not sure. But can I, can I just say something to you? That even if you weren't expecting this this morning, um, the truth is that every single one of us around this room is affected by sin in some way and have been. There, there's no point in the church or any person in a church pointing a finger at someone saying, oh, I know your stuff. Because there's three fingers pointing back at them. 
And every single one, why, we're all affected by it. Why are we affected by it? We were born, we were born broken. We didn't have to learn it. We were born, like if you're honest with yourself, there's things in you that you just don't like about you. There's things that, that, you, um, that you, know, you let people down. You do things you think, ah, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But you didn't have to learn that. It was, it was you're born that way. It's almost like we were born on a conveyor belt of sin that's heading us straight to hell. And unless something rescues us from that conveyor belt, that is our end destination. That's a truth that none of us wants to hear. And some of us were like, well, I was on the conveyor belt. Well, we compare ourselves. We're like, well, I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, we start feeling better like, huh, at least I didn't murder anybody. At least I didn't do any of the bad sins or the big sins. I've got a few things, but I'm not that bad. You're like, you know, you get to the end of life and you wonder, why am I still in that destination? Because sinner has nothing to do with behavior. It has to do with, it has to do with what you were born into. Born into this thing called sin. And he says, you need to be born again into something else. Rescued out, out of that place and into somewhere else. And that's the good news of the gospel. And because all of us have this thing called a past and that's broken. That Jesus came for us and said, you know what? You can't fix this, but I can. And to fix it's going to cost me dearly. Because the penalty for all of that, the payment for all of that stuff you thought was going to be great, it actually is death. It's just death every single time. Death in relationships, death in marriages, death financially, death physically, death everything. So let me take it for you, he says. He hung on a cross and he bore my sin, my death. He bore your sin, your death. And he says, listen, I'm offering you a hand. All you got to do is reach up because it does require one thing of you this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been sitting in church your whole life. Christianity has nothing to do with that. It has to do with this thing called confession. Have you ever said, Jesus, I confess, I am a sinner. It's my life. Jesus, I need a savior. I've been trying to be gooder, but I'm not good enough. Maybe you're here this morning and that's your attempt at trying to be gooder. He's like, listen, would you just reach out and say, Jesus, I just trust you. I'm holding on to you because I have no other hope, but I hold on to you. And you know what? He's going to drag you right out of that place. He will set you free and you are free. You get to live differently now because you've got eternal life on the inside of you as a result. So live it. So live it. <laughs> I hope this morning challenges you with some thoughts. I hope these words just stir up Holy Spirit's words in you. And if there's things, questions that come up, maybe you're like, how do I become, how do I, what do I do next after following Jesus? Come talk to me. Let's, let's live this thing out of what church, the gathering was really meant to be. Because it's Jesus' command to us. Love one another. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Confess sin to one another. Pray for and with one another. Can we do that together? Father, thanks for this morning. I know some of these words are hard to say and maybe harder to hear. But Holy Spirit, I'm just grateful for the life that's in them. Thank you for changing my life. Thank you for your incredible love for each and every person in this place. That, that's not changed at all. It, it, it's forever. Father, I pray over every person as Holy Spirit, as you translate into their individual lives what you desire for them to hear this morning, would you give them the courage that they need? courage that they need to take the steps that they know they need to take. God, I pray that they'll experience your good in their life. May it be to your glory because you're the only one who could do it in us. Keep our eyes on you this week as we leave this place. In your name we pray. Amen.